Hi, this is Paul Dennett in Sydney, Australia, and I'm here with Patrick Avenal. Hello, Paul. Hello, listeners. Welcome, everyone, to episode 16 of Bat and Ball with Pat and Paul. On today's Bat and Ball with Pat and Paul, we recap the two World T20 finals, both won by the West Indies. We look at Marlon Samuel's feud with Shane Warne. We analyse West Indies cricket in general and take a look at the interesting personality of the man running their organisation. Then, in our final over, we discuss the Duke ball, women's pay, the Australia's and India's upcoming tours, the Indian Premier League, and poor old Ben Stokes and that woeful final over. Right, Patrick, before we get on to the actual games themselves, now that the tournament's over, are you aware of any bias in terms of whether it was better to bat first or bat second in the event? Oh, good question. Question without notice, Paul. I instinctively think in T20 it's actually better to bat second. I think that you're a bit more uh, conscious of the sort of run rates you need to go at. And sometimes when you bat first in T20, you're groping around in the dark a little bit. You, You tend to think, you tend to aim too high, that you tend to aim for 200 and go out very hard and lose wickets. Whereas I think when you bat second, you really can pace yourself. Like if you're chasing 230, as England did in the game against Africa, you just know that you're going to have to swing the bat against everything. But if you're only chasing uh, 155, as West Indies were in the final, you know that you can uh, set yourself up to go at, you know, eight and over, which is pretty sensible in in T20 these days. Yeah, that's all true. And the interesting thing about this tournament was that the, the prevailing conditions had an impact as well. So there were three o'clock games and there were 7.30 games, which went to seven o'clock in the, in the, knockout, in the knockout phases. So the three o'clock games began in, obviously in daylight, but by the time the last half hour had occurred, they had started to delve into that sort of twilight zone with the lights on. And obviously the 7.30 games were, were all at night. And the, the conventional sort of theory was that batting second at night could be easier because the dew would kick in and the wicket would um, not be as responsive as it was in the first innings. And this has borne out that of the 21 later starting games, the team batting second won 15 times, and the team batting first won six. But of the games at three o'clock, there were 12 games. All 12 were won by the team batting first. Really? That's that's quite a good stat you've dug up there, Paul. Well done. I'm I'm very proud of it. I'm very proud of that stat, actually. The... uh... And that includes the um, the earlier rounds as well, the, with the um, uh, the with the, the, the lesser nations tournament. The, <laughs> yeah. the if I if I want to think about a reason for that, perhaps perhaps when you bat first during the afternoon, that you know we talk about that being great seeing conditions in Test cricket, that that's the time when you like to bat best. I think and, so, yeah. And we always talk in the old days of day night cricket. Used to talk about that transitional period, exactly. Uh, at going out to bat at six thirty as being the hardest time to bat as you waited for the lights to take over from the the dwindling sun. Well, I think that's what happened with the um, Australia's chase in the very first game of the tournament against New Zealand, that it suddenly became that much harder when the lights started to fade and you didn't know whether it was the sunlight that was, was in charge or whether it was the artificial lights. So a curious sort of stat that you'd hope that maybe in future they could slightly tweak the start times of the games to make it a little bit fairer. Well, I wonder if, if uh, any teams actually noticed this in running and adjusted their their strategy in order to make sure if they won the toss they went with the uh 
the way that the trend was going. Well, I'm proud of the fact that the Australians obviously didn't, and that's that's you know keeping with our standard. You know that that kind of statistic, you, you could imagine their eyes glazing over and just saying, "Come on, mate, let's we're not here. To, we're not here for a maths lesson. We're here to play cricket. We hit the top of off, and you hit it for six. So the Australians, when they won the toss against India in the um, the last game that they played, a night game, duly battered and lost. Well, it, it does call to mind, you know, that uh, Australian teams when they when they, they like to bat first to show teams, it's considered a sign of weakness in order to field first, especially in test cricket. It's a bit like our swimmers at the Olympics. You've got to go out hard. <laughs> you've, got to, you've got to set a marker down as early as possible. Reminds me of the 92 World Cup when, uh, as a fan watching, we were saying, geez, Australia's, uh, Australia's going to really struggle to make the finals here. And part of the reason for that was our net run rate wasn't very good. And I remember reading in Alan Border's autobiography that in the halfway through the tournament when it became clear that Australia needed to win and win well he said I must admit or words to the effect of I must admit that we hadn't given net run rate any consideration up until then and I just that is well, at um, least they overcorrected for the 99 World Cup well yeah, when, so. they, when they intentionally went slow to try and improve the West Indies net run rate well, that, that was brilliant. That, that was brilliant. Game. That was like the, the most that I've ever seen Australia try to game a system. It was Steve Waugh and Bevan. They needed about 10 to win, and they'd been going at a run rate of about 7 or 8, and suddenly they scored about 15, took about 15 overs to get the final 10 runs. Um, so, um, anyway, um, an interesting start, I think. Well, and uh, there was a recently a tournament that we watched. We don't need to reflect on old World Cups. And Paul and I got together to watch both finals on Sunday, and West Indies wrapped them both up. Pretty good achievement. Oh, an amazing achievement! Amazing achievement uh, for a, we, we saw the West Indies men out here during the Australian summer, and it's regarded as one of the worst international summers of cricket Australia's ever I mean, had. Uncompetitive is a nice way to look at it, even though they did get a draw out of the Sydney Test. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and had they agreed to the uh, the offer, they could have managed to lose that as well on <laughs> the final day. But you, you got the sense that the West Indies side would come last in the Sheffield Shield if they'd been out here and w- wouldn't even win Sydney grade competition. They were utterly, utterly, abjectly hopeless. So for them to have won the, the men's and the women's tournament, stunning turnaround and uh, I think only good for world cricket. They're, the West Indian skill set does seem perfectly attuned to the T20 format. I think that no other, no other country is so... Maybe Pakistan is so focused on that form of the game even I think India is better in longer form formats of the game where their where their skillful batsmen can get set and then score uh, runs at a higher rate well this could be um, an interesting theory that you've come across Patrick that the maybe the administrative um, ineptitude of the West Indies cricket all these years has been designed to force their players to become mercenaries and play 120 t20 games a year and just ev- eventually perfect the format and as a result you're seeing the dividends now. Well, you do you do look at the t- the the tests the teams that play tests and the teams that play T20 for West Indies are not that similar because a lot of the players have abandoned the test tours in order to play uh, domestic T20 comps around the world. But when they get <clears> together and when you put you know when Gale decides who will play for the West Indies and when those big name players like Darren Sammy and Marlon Samuels and Braithwaite, when they get together and they all play, they all seem to have a good team spirit. When you saw how happy they were on the sideline, they do become a very formidable force very quickly. Yeah, I think it's Braithwaite. I think that the Australian singer um, who sings oh, the... Sorry um... about that. It's just, <laughs> I, I grew up listening to... We'll go to riding the on the horses. <laughs> yeah. the, a quick recap of the actual match. England uh, won the toss and batted first. And it, 
Look, it wasn't a great performance, I have to say. They only they only got 155. Joe Root held it together with 54. And the I just want to correct myself. West Indies actually won the toss and chose to field. The, uh, and West Indies then, they were very slow starters. They lost wickets very quickly. And it looked as though England were going to uh, defend their modest total. But Marlon Samuels uh, got set and scored 85 of 66. And then in the very final over, West Indies did 19 off 6. Ben Stokes had the ball. He was bowling to Brathwaite, who we were just discussing. Paul, talk us through the four deliveries. Well, as someone who prides himself on seeing the most important games of cricket live, um, and because this was on at a pretty late time in Australia, and we'd been out and ended up, I got home and, and fell asleep and didn't see the rest of the game. I'm pretty disappointed that I didn't see this live, because by all accounts... Um, I think Shane Warne said in 25 years of watching international cricket, he'd never seen anything like it. And you would have been expecting that the West Indies were maybe a 1 in 20 chance of winning. For them to have won, effectively they had the game won after three balls because the scores were were level. To go 6-6-6-6, absolutely astonishing. And you've got a feel for Ben Stokes. I read an article about uh, in the paper um, saying how there's that famous comment from English football when uh, someone was about to take a really crucial penalty and the commentator said, oh, God, I'd hate to be in his position. And George Best piped up from the back of the commentary box saying, I'd love to be. And the, the whole idea was that the really great players say, give me the ball when the match is on the line. And that's what Stokes is. They're saying that, you know, this is what he lives for. And he's got that real aggression and winning attitude. And he does. And so to have someone like that taken down for 24 runs off four balls. Uh, catastrophic. You almost feel as though the, the 19 <clears throat> runs perhaps made them feel a little bit uh, complacent about uh, about bowling in that over and about field placing. If they needed 10 off the last over, I could imagine it being kept tighter and the field being all up and it made perhaps being harder for, for Brathwaite to hit the uh, to hit the sixes. But needing 19, him need, knowing he needed to just swing and swing hard, swing for the fences, as they say, in a baseball... I feel as though Stokes lost his nerve a little bit. I can uh, interject with a cricket joke here that you said that they, maybe their fielding positions could have been different. Maybe they should have had someone in row 17D. <laughs> <laughs> That's where the ball went, isn't it, Paul? <laughs> now, following, following the, um, the great victory, uh, Marlon Samuels, I, have, so I found this very amusing. <laughs> he, he decided, in the great tradition of winning and then rubbing it in your faces... He decided that he would tee off on his old nemesis, Shane Warne. It was one of the greatest put-downs I've ever heard. Paul, talk us through it. Well, the thing was, the, the interview was over. And so he, he had uh, spoken to Nasser Hussain, and Hussain was sort of ready to say, OK, I'll move on to the next. And he, he, he kind of almost commandeered the microphone and just gave a special shout-out to Shane Warne, saying that he was the reason that, he, that he'd really um, gone so hard. And so the question is... Where did this feud come about from? Um, well, the, the the best bit was when he said, "I've got my, I've still got my own face." Yeah, that was the that was the put down deluxe. Yeah, said, exactly. You know, our feud is what drove me to win this game for the West Indies, and by the way, I've got my own face still. Which prompted Brad Haddon to say, "What a silly thing it was that everyone should have been talking about the finals, and you know, the the the, the everyone should have been talking about the the four sixes and what a wonderful game it was." And by giving all these sound bites, he took away from his own achievement, which. Um, which is kind of funny given that the morning after Australia World that won the World Cup a few months ago, um, Brad Haddon went on Triple M Radio in Sydney and said that, that they'd 
decided that the New Zealanders were two good blokes and that they deserved to be sledged as a result and kind of did a little bit of the same himself. But It would have been great if Marlon had grabbed the microphone and just said, feeling thirsty? <laughs> <laughs> but I think it all... The first I was aware of it was that they had a big clash in the BBL and there was tempers raised and... and um, was a pretty nasty little incident between Samuels and, and Warren. But then um, this recent summer, the performance of Samuels um, was absolutely pretty bad. And well, it was just looked as though he didn't want to be here the whole time. Yeah, it wasn't just Warren saying it. It was, you look at, I've looked at a few newspaper articles at the time and they're all lamenting what a, um, an uninterested performance Marlon Samuels was 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 putting out there. And there was one instance where Samuels got himself run out and uh, Warm was in commentary at the time. Let's have a listen to that. Nice to see Silly Point back. He's been on vacation the last couple of years. Oh, that's a run out. That is a run out. That is a shambles. And as if uh, Marlon Samuels' tour hasn't been painful enough, Horrific running for Marlon Samuels there. It was, yes, no, he hit in the gap and just sort of was too cool for school when he took off. And was basically straight to the field. And when it goes square like that, it spins back to the field. He watched this spin back to him nicely, just sits up. And what was Samuels doing? He was just in no man's land saying yes, no, then just left, stood in the middle of the wicket and blames his partner. Oh, sorry, Marlon, that's all your fault there. It was bad running. You watched that. And you say, yeah, Warren's 100% right, although he certainly uh, didn't hide his relish in, um, in applying the stick to Samuels at that instance. Well, I think if you were going to try and play devil's advocate, Marlon Samuels might say that he plays with a particularly laconic style. Like, he's always had that sort of slouch shoulders look. Uh, he tends to sort of, you know, he's never really had great footwork. It's always been... So perhaps he, it, it looks it's emphasised by him, especially when you standing next to Australian cricketers who are running around like um, rabbits in heat. Yeah, that would make sense, except for the fact that his performances have been so inconsistent. He he was brilliant in the final here, and he was brilliant in the final when the West Indies won it in 2012. He he top-scored in a low-scoring match. Um, he, you know, he was player of the match in that game by the length of the straight. So his, his best is very, very good. Yet his overall figures, he's got a test career batting average of about 33, um, bowling average of about 60, which he doesn't have to bowl, w- b- worry about anymore because he's been banned for throwing. So he's... Um, so every cloud. Yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> but he even mentioned how in the, in the conference when he, he had a go at Stokes as well and said that the, the, the players from the England side have said to Stokes to shut up when Samuels is out there, basically implying or he sort of directly said that they know that if someone chirps at me, I become a much better player and that Stokes should shut up, but he doesn't learn. And again, why should someone chirping at you make you a better player? It seems that Samuels... He, he, he got feeds it. off it. He feeds off the, um, you know, proving people wrong. Yeah, but it seems like it takes his performance from mediocre to excellent, whereas you would hope that if you're playing for your country that your performance would be at the high level a, anyway. It reminds me of a story about how um, when the Williams sisters were growing up in a particularly uh, poor and, and dangerous area of LA in the Compton region, Richard Williams, their father, used to hide, hire uh, like uh, essentially white people from the neighbourhood to place them around the, the tennis courts they were practising and yell out racial slurs at them so that they would be driven to overcome white oppression and be, and be better tennis players. So by the time they'd hit the professional circuits, 
there is absolutely nothing that the Williams sisters hadn't heard in an, as an abuse thrown at them because their father was paying them to make it happen. Yeah, it's a lovely, charming dad. The president of the West Indies Cricket Board, Dave Cameron, is, you would think, a very happy man at the moment and on face value would be entitled to be with his men's and women's side winning the World T20. And he's expressed this on Twitter that um, the Asian Sunday newspaper sent out a a tweet saying um, that uh, with both teams in the final, he says, look at me now, in inverted commas. And President Cameron obviously endorsed this because he retweeted it. And then another person from the West Indies said that, uh, does this mean that he's doing a good job or nah? Or is it players get praised when we win and management get cussing when we lose? Um, and so again, he's retweeted that to emphasize, you criticize me when things were down, you should be happy with me when, when things are going good. But on the flip side, um, not everything has been going so well. Patrick, you've got a couple of quotes there? Yeah, well, first of all, uh, Darren Bravo came out and, and said that Dave Cameron was immature, small-minded and arrogant. And then when they asked Darren Sammy about this, he really hit him for six. He said, a lot of people came down on the players. They questioned our commitment. They questioned whether we were really committed to the West Indies or if it is just money. A lot of people don't understand the things we go through as players dealing with our board. It is the most unprofessional board in the world to me. Darren Sammy spoke from his heart. There is nothing wrong with Sammy's speech and I support Darren 100%. That was Dwayne Bravo talking after the win. So after both men and women had won. And then he gave us a bit of an insight into what it's actually like to, to play as a West Indian cricketer when he said, we get to India, our names were not even printed on the uniforms. Our manager had to leave our camp to get names and numbers printed while in India. We played this entire tournament without caps. <laughs> now, I mean, a lot of Australian club sides wouldn't be put in that sort of predicament. And yet the West Indian cricket team arrived for the second biggest tournament in the game and they didn't have proper uniforms. Yeah, it's... Um, I mean, And, and they overcame <clears> that to <throat> win, amazingly. And partially that is that they, are, um, they don't have anywhere near the money that Australia has and they are 16 islands trying to sort of work as one. So there's some challenges there. But that, there's no excuse for that, getting the, getting the caps there. But it doesn't end there. That with Dave Cameron, um, for a start, he's, a, he's an interesting character. I mean, on Twitter, he um, lists himself as the president of the West Indies Cricket Board. He adds that he's the president and CEO of Infinity Capital, um, and that, he's lo- that he loves golf, squash, and cricket. It's nice that quick cricket gets a run as well. Um, and so some of his tweets of late, if you're looking for speed delivery for your shopping online, fetch.com. Can you imagine the um, chairman of the football association in England sending something like that or the, the chairman of the Australian cricket board sending something like that out um, he also um, famously and I think this is a much more serious one was during the World Cup and we've talked about it, I think this in the past but a cricket fan tweeted during the 2015 World Cup Gale goes can't buy a run let's give him a retirement package can't fail repeatedly and still front up based on reputation and President Cameron retweeted that for me that was the first I'd ever heard of him. And for me, that there endeth the lesson. He should have been fired at that point and should never have been picked again. You can't do that to one of your employees. Well, I, it was Chris Gale an employee at the time? It would probably be all... Who would know that there do seem to be in a permanent state of contract dispute? Well, he was representing the West Indies at the World Cup. Um, so, But that, that touches on where this contra- contractual dispute um, sort of started out. And so 
um, Cameron's been in the in the job for a couple of years, and in October 2014, as you may recall, the West Indies players dramatically left the tour of, of India, and I've been looking into the, the into the causes of that, and I think that it's fair to say, if you were generous, you'd say that it wasn't David Cameron to be to be blamed totally; that the players needed to share some form of the blame. But if you were being ungenerous, you'd say it was it was pretty poor on his behalf. Either way, he didn't handle it all that well. Basically, Patrick, I don't. Do you remember remember this occurring at the time? I remember Wavell <clears throat> Hines uh, was heavily involved. The former opening batsman was then representing the players. And he, he was suggesting that they cancel the tour of India, which turned out to be devastating for them because that's how you make all your money in cricket these days is by touring India. Yeah, I don't know if Wavell was suggesting they cancel the tour. The thing with Wavell Hines, and he's a key figure, was that he, um, a bit like Don Bradman, you don't hear that every day, um, was an absolute advocate for player um, getting better pay during their career. But once their career finished and they sort of sided with the administrators... The administrators had almost done the smart thing, getting the, the agitator on their own side and then getting them working for him. So, <clears throat> Wavell Hines was the representative of the West Indies Players Association and the West Indies players were all pretty happy that um, they had in you know someone pretty, um, pretty feisty in their court. But um, Wavell Hines kind of uh, abandoned them and so they went to the tour without any contractual situation in place, but they'd left it with knowing that Wavell Hines would keep them in, in you know, a nice situation. Wavell negotiated a 60 to 70% pay cut for them um, that David Cameron oversaw. And the backstory is that apparently, and this indicates where West Indies cricket can be, that a few years earlier, the head of the West Indies Players Association had tricked the West Indies Cricket Board into accidentally signing to give them more money than they deserved. And so that the West Indies board had been agitating to fight back. And so this is how David Cameron fought back um, by uh, sort of buttering up Wavell Hines and getting them to, all, to agree to a much lesser payment. So the players have all been told, cool, Wavell's going to look after us. And then suddenly found out that the pay has been absolutely slashed. And at this point, they said to David Cameron, well, wait a minute. Obviously, Wavell's gone crazy. Can we talk to you directly? And he said, nah. I'm negotiating with the head of your with the head of your representatives. Uh, like you know, that's you guys elected him. That's your problem. And he basically, in order to make a point to the against the players, so it seems, he allowed the tour to be to be cancelled. Which at one point there was talk of sixty million dollars that the West Indies cricket would be uh, liable for. And that, as you said, Patrick, you, you, you know. Not only is touring India the, the greatest source of revenue for a, a team, if you offend India, that's the greatest way to, to go down the gurgler. So, <clears throat> Well, and briefly touching on the West Indies' <clears throat> other triumph, uh, a really magnificent chase to win the women's uh, World T20 final. Australia posted 148. West Indies chased... Uh, it's got 120 for the opening stand, and that pretty much broke the back of the chase and then did it in the final over. Uh, it's, you know... Hard, hard to underestimate how impressive this performance is when you consider uh, the West Indian men complain about how under-resourced they are and we know that women's sport in general is under-resourced compared to male sports so the West Indian women must have really overcome a lot of ob- obstacles to win this to win this event against the, against the Australian team which I would suggest is the best resourced women's cricket team in the world quite probably although they should be again better resourced but yeah <clears throat> um the Australians were going for four in a row, and I wouldn't say they played badly. They 
probably just one of those. I think they could have scored more runs. I think that uh, watching their innings, they seem to think of they seem to aim too low in 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 the runs. I think they could have gone a little bit harder and perhaps got to 170. But 150 is close to par in women's cricket. But you couldn't foresee the the innings that Matthews and Taylor played for West Indies to be none for 120. It was phenomenal batting at the innings break. I thought Australia were going to win. So. Um, yeah, a pretty impressive effort by the West Indies, and a, an impressive effort by Australia to have gone uh, three wins in a row and then come runner-up in the, in the in the next tournament. You can't win them all. Um, so, in terms of the West Indies cricket, just last little uh, factor on that is that the Indians are now touring there, and it seems as though you could give some credit to Dave Cameron for having patched relationships up with them, but. Interestingly, the Indian, and you'll like this, Patrick, the Indian tour of the West Indies is going to coincide with the Caribbean Premier League. So um, I find that absolutely baffling that the Caribbean Premier League, for those of you who don't know, is a, a very successful T20 tournament in the West Indies, possibly the third biggest T20 tournament in the world. Part of the reason for its success is that um, it has all of the West Indian stars playing for it. So somehow they're now going to be playing test matches against India at the same time that this is on. So... Who knows where it all ends up, but the the general consensus is that David Cameron needs to resign. Even if you'd argue that he's done nothing wrong, the players don't like him, and, and for the West Indies cricket to, to, to move forward, that seems like the right thing to happen. Our final segment today is the final over. Six points to discuss quite quickly. First of all, ball number one, Patrick. This next coming uh, Sheffield Shield season for the second half of the season, rather than the Kookaburra balls, we're going to be using the Duke balls. What do you think of that? Well, I think it's it's I'm I'm for I'm pro using the Duke ball, and I think that it's good that they're going to be uh, you know trying to get at least some customization to to the ball. Although one of the issues that we're they're going to be having is that they're still going to be using the Duke in Australian conditions rather than English conditions. So I don't really know how much they're going to learn. I also wonder how many players that will actually be playing test cricket will be facing it, seeing that they barely play shield cricket anymore. Well, all good points. And I think the other thing is, is that not only is it in Australian conditions that means it won't swing as much, but apparently one of the reasons that they've tried it in the past in some grade games here and the Duke ball gets beaten up a fair bit in Australian conditions... I'm with you as well, though. It's good that they're trying something. And maybe that they're thinking that this upcoming year of 2016-17, that um, two years later when we go to England for the Ashes in 2019, that maybe some of those guys will be involved. I think it's a start. Um, but I'd like to see them try to um, replicate English conditions even more. I was talking to on another podcast yesterday, and they made the suggestion... Um, why not get a really um, lush ground in Tasmania to, to develop into a, a real English type of ground? And I, I think that'd be a good idea. Paul, women's pay. There's been a dramatic upward uh, uptick in uh, how the women's cricketers are going to be paid. Well, I think this is um, something that all cricket fans should celebrate. They've gone from the elite pool's gone from $2.36 million to $4.23 million. And this means that um, someone who's playing in all of the of the primary forms of the game could be uh, earning six figures throughout a season. Look, I think that it's it's not all that long ago that um, these sorts of s- strides were being made in the men's game. And so while I agree that it, the women should be p- being paid a lot more, the reality is 
that you know the reality is it's not happening so let's celebrate the fact that this is a whopping big increase and let, you know let's hope that it continues year on year i think that it coming off the back of the first real summer where we've seen women's sport on tv i think it's a pretty good effort and i expect it to to do better because uh next summer i think will be even bigger for the women's big bash i hope so and i hope that they can get some um even more games on free-to-air tv we can see some more um uh, amazing ratings now patrick the ipl is about to start have you got any interest in it yeah the mumbai indians are playing the rising pune super giants uh, this Sunday, and I've got absolutely zero interest, Paul. But not not because I, I don't like the IPL or or, or domestic T Twenty. It's because the games aren't shown on TV in Australia, and that I think that might be a surprise to some of our subcontinental uh, listeners that we don't really have a, an avenue to to watch the games. If the games were on TV, and it, it is, it's not prime time, but it is, it's not the worst time zone possible. I would definitely watch it, and I would have an interest, but. Uh, I'm not going to watch it on a um, crappy internet stream. Well, that's the thing. That even I mean, I think you can get a, a decent internet stream, but it's that extra barrier to entry as well that I think is that, that gets in the way. Look, I want to say the Rising Pune Super Giants simply because that is the silliest name in in any sporting franchise I've ever heard, and that it's been um, simply chosen so that RPSG, the company that that backs it, can have its initials in the name of the team. So. Um, you know, I hope they get thrashed for having such a stupid name. All right, the fourth ball. This is as far as Ben Stokes got in the last over. Australia's team for our tour of West Indies, uh, playing one days against the Windies in South Africa. What are your thoughts, Paul? Well, my thoughts are this is a, a series that already um, no one remembers, even though it hasn't even occurred yet. Um, <laughs> two months after this series takes place, there won't be a single person on earth who will remember any of the results that occurred. So, look, one day cricket... At a pinch, the Champions Trophy matters, but really the only thing that matters is the World Cup. These sorts of meaningless series... Um, look, for the sake of the argument, I'm very pleased that Travis Head is in the side, and I think he should have been chosen in the... I think uh, it's good that Travis is going to have a hit because I think he, he's the sort of player that will be anchoring the side in the 2019 Cricket World Cup. And so we need to get him blooded now so that he's ready to go. We should have picked him for this um, for the World T20. Strange that Wade's back in the side again. I, I don't think that he's a long-term um, answer as a wicketkeeper. Not well, good enough for keeper. I don't think Peter Neville is either, though, for the, the <clears throat> limited forms. I think that after five years ago, we had four or five players who could be our wicketkeeper batsman, and now we're struggling to find one. But to Neville's credit, he hit a four and a six off the last two balls in the in the game against India that gave us a chance. I think he's a very good cricketer. I'm very happy for him to to to, um, to be there. Uh, I think we both agree. You pick your best eleven. You pick a wicketkeeper, and we also agree that no one else agrees with that. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. The schedule for next summer, Patrick. What do you think of it? I think that it's very unfair on Sydney and Melbourne. I think that uh, the Sydney and Melbourne fans are taken for granted. I'll, so the summer will start with South Africa, and we'll start in Western Australia. Uh, uh, normally, our visiting teams start at the Gabbatoir in early November, but. We're starting with a day-night... Sorry, we're starting in Perth, and then they're going to be going to Adelaide, and then for the third test, they're going to be up in Brisbane. No, no, no. The, oh, the, the third the, test is in Hobart. Yeah. I'm sorry, so... Second uh, test, day-night. So, they get... Perth gets the, the, the joy of the, the opening test against the premium team, uh, South Africa. Adelaide gets another day-night test, which is becoming a flagship event, and they deserve that because they supported it so well. Hobart, who I don't think deserves a test match at all, is getting a test against South Africa with Amler and de Villiers out there carting the ball around Belrive. And then Brisbane get their first day-night test against Pakistan, which I think is a novelty, and I think that might revive Brisbane cricket's uh, fortunes after the terrible crowds the last few years. 
But then when we get to Sydney and Melbourne, it's just Pakistan. It's just the inferior nation again, just like last year. The inferior cricketing nation. Yeah. Um, now, I think that... Um, yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think that... I understand them giving Perth the first test because it'll mean that Channel 9 get uh, a high rating game during the ratings period, which I think um, ends pretty soon after that. Mm. But um, what I don't understand is that I had been led to believe that South Africa had lost their intransigence and were willing to come to Australia during the Boxing Day period, that they've been trying to establish their own Boxing Day tradition of cricket, which is great. But, you know, sure... Well, someone asked me about that on Twitter. They said, is it because South Africa wants to cash in on their own Boxing Day test? And I wrote back saying, what cash? Exactly. They, they had these games and no one supported them. They went okay, but they, they've already abandoned it and replaced it with a T20 game on Boxing Day. The, the crowd in Melbourne on for a Boxing Day test match between Australia and South Africa on Boxing Day alone would probably exceed... Uh, a typical summer of test cricket crowds across all of South Africa. Look, I would love the opportunity for us to play South Africa in Sydney. I think some great Australia-South Africa tests have been played at the SCG, uh, you know, not least of all that uh, famous Alan Donald-Damien Martin match. But, you know, by the time the summer comes around, you know, I'll still watch every ball of every match and, and I'll enjoy it as much as anything. It would be good to see Sydney or Melbourne go get a day-night test. You know, they don't, we don't get the novelties because it's just assumed that we'll go in our hordes. It's a, it's a possibility in the future. I think that, um, they, they do so well now and that they're, they're on right during the Christmas period. They're reluctant to, to fiddle with them. But um, one opportunity would be to can Hobart and rather than going to Canberra where even if it sells out, the crowds will be small, give Sydney or Melbourne a second test match earlier on in the summer and make that a day-night test match. The population base would say that's the way to go. Well, something that Ben Stokes doesn't know much about is the final ball of the final <coughs> over. Paul, do you have any sympathy for the, for the young man? Of course. I think that... You know, he didn't bowl a great four, four balls, but they, they probably wouldn't have gone for 24. Um, I think the one thing it shows is that, and this is something that I would say to all Australian uh, cricketers, and I know that many of them listen to this podcast, but if, you're, um, if you regularly allow your competitive nature to uh, ebb across into being sledging and um, chirping, you're going to get humiliated from time to time because people love to smash someone who has been lippy. So... I think Ben Stokes should learn from this. Just um, be just every bit of as aggressive as the way you play the game, but um, stop chirping so much because when downturns come, there'll be less relish from from the opposition. I think you're very calm, Paul. I have no sympathy for it. (laughs) Hey, it's Patrick here doing the outro for the first time. Paul, thanks very much for joining me on Bat and Ball episode 16. But an absolute absolute pleasure, Patrick. Now, I blog it ironically at completepatrick.com and my Twitter is at Patrick Avenal. Paul, what's yours? At the underscore summer underscore game. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.